Thank you very much, Pastor Bryce, for that nice introduction. Good morning, everyone, or afternoon even. Goodness, <laughs> it's, uh, <coughs> it's afternoon. It's uh, a fairly long day. I should just fill you in that at the moment. I'm doing a full morning teaching every day at the seminary. So when I come here, this is really my afternoon off. So um, it's a, a pleasure to be with you all. And um, hello, Michigan. Go, Michigan. Well, uh, this afternoon, we are carrying on our series in Acts. And so far, we have seen what the purpose of Acts is. Uh, it carries on the story of Luke. Luke gives us a biography of Jesus, a life to imitate. And when we come to Acts, we find that there is a plan to the story. It's not just all random events. We find that Jesus tells the disciples to wait into Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and then they're to take his name, guided by the Holy Spirit, to, from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the world. And we've seen how that shapes the material of Acts. It's a spreading movement out from Jerusalem. We also saw in chapter 9 how Paul also had an agenda for his life. Um, Ananias was told through the Lord to tell him that Paul was going to take his testimony to the, Greek, to, to the Gentiles, to the Jews, and then finally to the kings. And this is what we find, is that when he does his missionary journeys, he usually goes into a town, and first of all, he hits the synagogue, and then after that, he interfaces with the Gentiles. And in the last third of Acts, nothing of the sort. There he is before one ruler after another, Felix, Festus, all these guys. And then finally, he's going to Rome, where he's going to meet the head honcho himself, the emperor. And this is the overview of Acts that we have looked at over the last two days. Now, today I would like to take us one step further, and my title is Keeping the Two Big Beasts Together. And please forgive me, I'm appalling at coming up with titles. I can't come up with catchy titles to save my life, but at least it gives you some idea of what we're going to look at today. Keeping the Two Big Beasts Together. When we read the Gospel the Acts, we find that overall there's two main characters. There's Peter and there's Paul. And the topic we're looking at today is how we can keep these together in the same church. It's so easy when we look at the church to look at differences and emphasize these. We saw yesterday that the church is full of differences. We have the Hebrews in Jerusalem, the Hellenist Jews. We have the proselytes, the God-fearers, the Samaritans, the Ethiopians, the Romans. We have the elite, we have lower members of society, we have members of the sect of the Pharisees. Imagine that, you can be a Pharisee and a follower of Jesus uh, and still get onto the church board in Acts 15. We have thousands zealous for the law in chapter one, uh, 21 in Jerusalem. It is a highly complex, highly diverse church. And the question I have as I read Acts is this, and this is a question that we can apply to our own days. What keeps such a diverse church together? And this is the subject we're looking at. If we can keep Peter and Paul together, maybe we can keep the rest of the church together. Let's bow our heads as we have a word of prayer before we open God's Word. 
Dear Heavenly Father, bless us now as we open your word. May it speak to us and uh, speak to our deepest desires, Lord. May it be instructive as we seek to serve you, not just on our own as individuals, but as members of your church. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, this afternoon, uh, I'm going to take you through a number of compares and contrasts. I've got five of them, compares and contrasts. Uh, in education, this is uh, a um, typical exercise we give students to compare something, is to look for the similarities, what's in common between two elements. To contrast is to compare two elements, but this time, instead of looking for what's in common, it's to look for what is different. And we're going to do some compare and contrasts. This is a technique used by the evangelist. It's used by Luke in Acts. And as we uh, focus on this technique, it helps bring out some beautiful messages within this book of Acts. So let us start with a, a very basic compare and contrast, a compare and contrast between Luke, the gospel, and Acts, volume two of Luke's two works. And we find that when we sort of stand back and look at the two works from a distance, that they have many, many things in common. We find that they have a similar opening. We find that they both have stories at the beginning where the Holy Spirit descends. We find that both are chock-a-block with sermons, lots and lots of uh, uh, preaching going on. We find that there is conflict with the authorities, with the leaders in both. And then both lead to a journey, a journey to a destination, to Jerusalem in the case of Luke, in Acts, it's to Jerusalem, and then we go on a little further to Rome. Let me just take you through some of this just to show you how it works. So here we have the opening of both books, and we looked at on Mon in Monday's seminar the opening of Luke where he's dedicating his work to Theophilus, to you, most excellent Theophilus. And when we read Acts chapter 1, he starts off where he had left off. So here we have again in the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So he's really uh, in his uh, opening passage in Acts signaling that this is part two of part one. It's a continuation of the story that I have already told you in the gospel, Dear Theophilus. Uh, we find that both books open with the Holy Spirit descending. We have the baptism of Jesus in Luke chapter 3. The Holy Spirit descends upon him. And Luke is unique in this, uh, in that he says that it's in bodily form like a dove. That's unique to Luke. Uh, in the other Gospels, it's sort of like a dove. It's a little more ambiguous, but Luke has pinned it down. It's in bodily form as a dove. And then we have that great declaration from heaven, from the Father, where he's combining Psalm 2 and Isaiah. Uh, you are my son, the beloved. 
with whom I'm well pleased. You are my son, you are a king, that's Psalms. And then with whom I'm well pleased is from Isaiah. It's telling us that he is a servant. But then we have also seen that Acts starts with a similar narrative. We have the story of Pentecost, where the Spirit descends in tongues of fire. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. So both accounts open with similar stories. I've mentioned that we have lots of sermons in both, uh, both books we have conflict with the elders, but we also have, as I mentioned, we have the last, maybe third of Luke, is really Jesus from, we've got there in uh, chapter 9, verse 5, uh, an intimation of what's going to come. He sets his face towards Jerusalem. I know where I'm going. Jesus is a character in the gospel who is not caught off. Uh, he's not caught out. He always knows what he wants to do, and from a long distance away from Jerusalem, he knows that that's where he is going. He has a, 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 a date booked in his diary in Jerusalem. He has a plan, and this is what we find in Acts. The last half of Acts, maybe the third of Acts, also is a long journey narrative. It is Paul going from uh, Asia Minor, uh, Greece, all the way back to Jerusalem, and then from Jerusalem all the way to Jerusalem, uh, to Rome. And this journey is a journey that fills the church with, uh, with great sadness because they know that it's a journey similar to the one that Jesus uh, undertook to Jerusalem. So, when we do a compare and contrast of the two books of Luke and Acts, we are struck by how similar they are. They both have openings very similar, and they have conclusions which are very similar. And uh, the, what are we to take away from this? As we read these two books and compare them, what lesson can we draw from these similarities? And I would suggest something like this. It's that the work of Jesus continues. This is the message, is that rather, you know, with Mark, he wrote his 16-chapter gospel. Matthew wrote his 28-chapter gospel. Um, and really, they sort of come to the end, and Matthew finishes with, don't worry, I will be with you always. But we, the readers, have to write the next chapters, and we're not quite sure what's going to come. But for Luke, he says, you know, the story, as we move from the ministry of Jesus to the ministry of the, uh, the church, we hardly miss anything. A beat. This is one movement, and we have to look at this and think, no, we are not second-class citizens because we weren't walking with Jesus around the, the paths of Galilee, but rather we're part of His church, and we're part of that same movement that started in Jesus' ministry. We're not to sort of negate our experience and think, oh, if only. No, 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 no. We're part of book two as members of God's church, driven by by the Holy Spirit. And so what this is doing, this is elevating our experience, and it's asking us to look at what we're going through and saying, look and view at your ministry and view it as a continuity of what Jesus was doing. That's a humbling message that uh, I pick up from Luke and Acts. So the work of Jesus continues. However, it is not so simple. 
Uh, You see, as the work of Jesus continues, and we need to see our church as a continuation of that narrative, we find that when we look at the church and maybe we put our glasses on and we look at the church in all its detail, as we saw yesterday, we have Judas and Ananias in the church. Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, we have Ananias and Sapphira. We look at the church and we say, can it really be so? Can it really be so? And then we look at all the diversity, another complicating factor. Can it really be so? And I would suggest to you that when we read the New Testament, we get a very realistic picture of the church. Let me share some texts with you. So we have 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here Paul is writing maybe from Ephesus. He's heard things going on in one of the churches he had established and he has heard that the church has broken into factions. Now, thankfully, I've never heard of that occurring in churches today. That's the good news. But uh, unfortunately, this happened back then. It broke up into factions. And we read there in verse 12, what I mean is this, is that each of you says, and this is what Paul is saying, I belong to Paul. So some are claiming I'm a Pauline Christian. Others are saying, I belong to Apollos. Apollos was known for his great rhetoric. He was a great preacher. Others are saying, I belong to Cephas. Cephas just is the uh, uh, Aramaic for Peter. So, I belong to Peter. And then others are claiming, no, 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 I belong to Christ. And Paul asks, has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And he has to spend an entire epistle, and then a second epistle, Second Corinthians, dealing with the church which has broken into factions. You see, this is what we find in the New Testament, is that it gives us a realistic portrayal of what God's people sometimes are like. Uh, we find when we read Second Peter that dear Peter, he describes his brother Paul. He says, uh, he says this, uh, quoting, uh, commenting on Paul. He says um, in verse 15, chapter 3, uh, regarding the patience of our Lord or salvation. So, also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, speaking of this as he does in all his letters. There are some things in them hard to understand. Imagine that, Peter writing about Paul's letters and saying, actually, sometimes when I read them, I scratch my head and think, what is he going on about? Yes, and sometimes Paul is difficult to understand. Uh, which the ignorant and the unstable, they twist to their own destruction. So they come along and they get Paul's letters and then they twist it out of shape and they create havoc in the church. And that's Peter's comments. Uh, And really he's uplifting Paul, but he's saying we need to be careful how we use what he writes. So maybe if you had Paul teaching Sabbath school one Sabbath and Peter the next Sabbath, maybe they would have given their own slant on the same subject. Weren't always uh, uh, viewing things in the same way. We find when we come to Galatians, uh, there we find that um, things get a little more heated between Peter and Paul. Paul describes himself as being 14 years um, as working there in Antioch, and after that he went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with them, and there we have Acts 15, the Jerusalem council, should Gentiles be circumcised? They deal with that issue. 
Paul thinks he's got the issues sewn up and we've agreed and everything's fine. He goes off back to Antioch, starts his ministry, and then he starts going off around the churches in Asia Minor over to Greece. And then he hears that actually the circumcision party haven't really kept to the agreement. When he is in Antioch, Cephas comes to Antioch. Peter comes to Antioch. And there, Peter, uh, while the Jews aren't there in the church, Peter, he eats and he drinks with the Gentiles. But when the Jews come to church, he actually separates and he backs off. And Paul, he says this, Uh, Let me read this for you. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. This is Paul telling us how he opposed Peter to his face in Antioch. Why? Because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. And the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, uh, this sort of self-condemnation we have there in the Greek, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy, and he actually uses the word in Greek. So, there we have Paul, and this is really quite sharp language, making the accusation to Peter that he's a hypocrite. Wow. Well, thankfully, nothing like that ever occurs in our church today. But just imagine it might, in which case we need to be forewarned. And Luke, he warns us, he he gives us a theological response when we see divisions in the church, not just diversity as we saw yesterday, but sometimes this diversity can actually result in divisions between different wings in the church. And that's what seems to have happened uh, according to the verses I've just shared with you. Now, we can read the New Testament focusing on the negatives. And when we do that, we can come up with a great conspiracy. And if you know anything about how the New Testament has been read in scholarship, you'll know that there was a rise of historical criticism. And this was really reading the Bible in really an uncharitable manner. And uh, you might have heard of F.C. Bauer, Christian Uh, uh, Ferdinand uh, Christian Bauer, and he took these texts, and you find with these, um, uh, with historical critics, that they always have some element in the text which they start off their thesis with, but really they're just pushing the evidence, I would suggest, a little too far. And um, he came up with the idea that uh, when we look at the text that I've just shared with you, that really what it tells us is that Christianity was riven down the middle. We had the left-wingers and the right-wingers, so to speak. We had Peter, the Hebrews that we saw yesterday, the elders, the, the twelve, the family of Jesus, the brothers of Jesus, James and Jude, and all these guys. This was one wing of the church, and they produced texts such as First and Second Peter, Matthew, James, and then after the New Testament, books like, uh, letters like First and Second uh, Clement. Um, and then on the other wing, we have Paul with his letters, and uh, Bauer, he argued that some are genuine and some are not. Uh, and then we also have Luke, He said, Luke, he is a pro-Pauline apologist, 
And then later, and um, uh, British scholars actually argued and overturned this whole uh, dating mechanism that Bauer had, said no way, it can't work because we've got these texts quoted in the church fathers too early. But then he put Acts and John way into the second century. No scholars follow that dating now, I would say. So this is really an uncharitable way of looking at the New Testament, is where we're always looking at divisions and we're seeing differences. And, um, you know, unfortunately, it's quite easy for some to look at the church and to do the same. We can always look for evidence and we can split the church into factions. And uh, I would suggest that we need to listen to Acts what Paul is saying. He gives us a response, a response because if we follow down this path, all we're doing is going to end up bitter and nasty and uh, a little disillusioned. Spiritually, it doesn't lead us anywhere productive. And so I would share with you what Paul's response is to this, and he has an altogether more positive uh, reading of his fellow brothers and sisters in the church than Bauer gave. So, the accusation of people like Bauer is that Paul has simply whitewashed over early Christian divisions. Can we be realistic about the church? Yes, we can. The New Testament is realistic. It tells us when there were problems. There were problems, but it doesn't tell us to give up, throw up our hands in horror. It tells us, no, Look at these events through a different prism, and this is the prism we're now going to move on to. Let's move on to our second compare and contrast. To compare is to look for similarities, contrast is to look for differences. And uh, as we go through Luke, we find that yes, Luke is concerned. He's not just saying everything goes in the church. Uh, just tolerate everything. That is not what he says. He says that the Christian community does need to know its boundaries. It does need to decide what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable. And he not, it doesn't just give us comparisons, hey, look at what's similar, but he also says, look at what's different. This is what's acceptable in the community, and this isn't. Let me share with you very briefly a, com a, a few compar um, compares and uh, yeah, some contrasts that we get. So, for example, let me read from chapter 4, the very end of chapter 4, and we've got a, uh, uh, a, um, a chapter division between end of chapter 4 and chapter 5, which somewhat masks what's going on. At the end of chapter 4, we have a little story which we often don't think about. It's the introduction of Barnabas, and let me read from verse 36. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostle gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him, then brought the money, and what did he do? He laid it at the feet of the apostles. How much of the money did he lay? All of it. And this is Barnabas. Barnabas is his nickname. Throughout the New Testament, we have more nicknames than we actually have real names, it seems. Uh, Jesus was always making up nicknames uh, because, really, he knows our character better than our mothers and fathers before we were born. So there we go. So here we have Joseph, who is known as Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. 
and he sells his property, brings it to the apostles, and lays it at their feet. The very next story in chapter 5 is about what? Ananias and Sapphira, and what's in common with the story we've just read. They too sell land. They too bring money to the apostles, but what is the difference? They lie. They are more concerned with being viewed publicly with praise rather than being honest with the Holy Spirit. They want social prestige, and so they lie to the Holy Spirit. And there we have Luke setting out the boundaries. This is acceptable, but this isn't. Another example we have is in chapter 8. Often Luke places two stories together where one is a good example and one is a bad example. The good example is in the second half of chapter 8. The bad example is in the first half of chapter 8. In chapter 8, we have Philip going to Samaria where he... Uh, he um, uh, uh, he preaches, and uh, the Samaritans there in um, Damascus, they respond positively and are baptized. And then we have a magician called Simon who had been practicing magic in the city, uh, and he has a great following. And he's worried because he sees that maybe uh, Philip is going to have a higher standing. He's going to get a higher ratings than he has. And so he... Um, uh, he then uh, sees when um, uh, he, he, he becomes interested in this movement. And then when James, uh, sorry, Peter and uh, John come up and uh, d uh, confer the Holy Spirit upon the believ believers, Simon, he offers to buy the Holy Spirit. He offers to buy it. Why? Not because he wants the Holy Spirit in order to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, but in order that he may get the same power that they have, in order that he can control the Holy Spirit for his own ends. There is the negative example. And then the very next story is of the Ethiopian eunuch who comes to know truth through Scripture through a Bible study, and his attitude completely contrasts with what we have with Simon, the magician. So there we have Paul setting a distinction. He says, you know, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit works in wonderful ways. Be careful you don't try to manipulate the Holy Spirit. We have another contrast in Luke, uh, in Acts, sorry, in chapter 12. There we have uh, King Herod, who kills James, the brother of Jesus, in chapter 12. And then as we move into chapter 13, so there we've got a, uh, a, a member of the elite, a ruler who is uh, uh, treating Christians simply, uh, he's killing them to increase his own popularity. But then in chapter 13, we've got the story of Paul in Cyprus before Sergius Paulus. And there, Sergius Paulus, he listens and he comes to faith. So we have two stories of two rulers, one a negative example and one a positive example. So Paul, 
oh, sorry, Luke, he is not the type of writer where he simply says, tolerate everything in the church. No, he is setting boundaries of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And how he signals that to us is by putting stories side by side, negative example, positive example, positive example, negative example. It's important that we know the boundaries as to what is acceptable within the Christian community. So, there we have some contrasts. But let me move on to my third compare and contrast. And uh, I've raised the issue, how do we keep Peter's and Paul's in the same church without splitting? And really, this would be Paul's response, is to look for what they have in common. Uh, This is not whitewashing. This is simply choosing to look at their ministries positively. And let me show you, and you may be surprised, to the extent to which Luke tells us that Peter and Paul are actually uh, more uh, similar than different, far more similar than you would have imagined, and not just between the two of them, but also look at all the things they have in common with Jesus. He's asking us to look at these two guys who, oh, if we wanted to be skeptics and maybe a little cynical, we could just focus on the differences and uh, uh, listen to the gossip. But he says, no, look at what they have in common. So let me take you through some things that they have in common. Here in the left column here, we have Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, and then we have Peter in Acts and Paul in in Acts. And I'm just going to take you through very briefly uh, some of the stories which, uh, as you move from Luke the Gospel into Acts, you get this strong sense of deja vu. Haven't I heard this before? So, let's start off. Uh, All three receive the Holy Spirit. All three are described as full of the Holy Spirit. All three heal a cripple. Let's just go through those in a little more detail. So we have in Luke 3, the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus at his baptism, as we've just read. In Acts 2, Peter and all the other disciples at Pentecost are filled with the Holy Spirit who comes upon them, uh, comes upon them in tongues of fire. And it's the Spirit that gives them the ability to speak, and it's Peter who stands up and speaks. And then in chapter 9, we have Ananias. He enters the house of Judas, and there he, uh, <clears throat> he says this, Brother Paul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So we find all three, Jesus, Peter, and Paul, are filled with the Holy Spirit. All three are described as full of the Holy Spirit. In fact, if we went back to Luke, we'd find that there are many characters who are described as full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit in Luke 4, verse 1. Uh, Acts 4, verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people, and then he started his speech. Uh, Acts 13, we have Saul, also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at uh, uh, the uh, Jewish magician. That's when he's with Sergius Paulus. We find that all three of them heal cripples uh, or those who are, um, uh, have problems with walking. Jesus, in Luke 7, 
uh, answered, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame, and the Greek word is holoi, they walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. And then we have that lovely story in Acts 3, where Paul, sorry, Peter and John, they're going into the temple, and um, uh, at the hour of prayer, three o'clock in the afternoon, and they come across a man who has been lame from birth. It's the same Greek word, and you remember that story, silver and gold have I not, but what I have I offer you. And then Acts 14, we have Paul in Lystra, and there is a man there sitting who could not use his feet, had never walked, for he had been crippled. Again in Greek, the same word, holos, from birth, and Paul heals them. So we get this sense that there is more in common than there are differences. Uh, We find that uh, all three cast out demons. Jesus casts out demons. All three are involved in miraculous healings. Um, All three confer the Spirit, Holy Spirit. Let's have a look at some of these uh, accounts just so you can see how it works. Luke 4, demons also came out of many shouting, you are the Son of God, but He rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew He was the Messiah. Uh, when we turn to Peter, a great number of people, this is a summary passage, would gather from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those tormented by unclean spirits. And that's really the same thing as demonic spirits. And they were all cured, Acts 15 verse Acts 5 verse 16. When we go to Paul in Philippi, you'll remember the story how he was being bothered by a young lady who kept following him, uh, proclaiming that he was an agent of the Most High God. And uh, we read there that one day in Uh, As we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. It was a python spirit she she had and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune telling. And you'll remember how that story went where Paul liberates her from the clutches of Satan and his demons. So, whoops, what have we done there? Let me just back up and just check uh, whether, ooh, there we go. Uh, All three are involved in miraculous healings. Uh, You remember the story in Acts 8, how the woman came up behind Jesus and touched the hem of his garment. Um, And um, later, we read that others, they hear about this story, and they too want to touch the hem of his garment. They hear how it works. Um, In Acts 5, we have this statement about Peter So they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats in order that Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he came by, in order that they might be healed. When it comes to Paul, no less wondrous. Uh, Acts 19, Paul did extraordinary miracles, sorry, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that when the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out. We get this sense that God's work is continuing in the church through Jesus and then through Peter and through Paul maybe a few more. They all raise the dead. 
They all deliver speeches. We have speeches of Jesus throughout the Gospel of Luke. We have eight speeches of Peter in Acts. We have nine speeches of Paul in Acts. Uh, Maybe Peter may feel a little hard done by and feel he has one last sermon to preach to get up to nine, but essentially we have equal treatment of the two. They are all, well, Peter and Paul are both delivered from jail. All of them are beaten, and all are tried by councils. Let's just look at some of these examples. Uh, Raising the dead. You remember the story of the widow of Nain, how Jesus touched the buyer as uh, they were coming out of the town uh, to bury that uh, widow's only son. The bearers stood still, and Jesus said, Young man, I say to you, rise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Uh, he's really restoring that, that uh, woman's life. Uh, she had um, uh, no one to look after him, and she's giving him back uh, her son. Acts 9, Peter. We've got the story of Peter with Dorcas, Uh, also known as Tabitha. And there you'll remember how Tabitha, who was known for her acts of charity, she died, and there was uh, uh, great sadness there in… and Peter comes, and he goes, and he kneels down and prays, and there Luke tells us he turned to the body and said, Tabitha, get up. Then she opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. A similar thing with Paul. You know the story of Eutychus. Paul is preaching, preaching all the way through the night to the extent that Eutychus, he falls asleep, falls out the window, and crashes to the ground, and Paul comes and brings him back to life. So, all of these stories, they add a sense. Wow, the the mission of God started in Jesus, continues through the apostles, yes, through Stephen, yes, through, uh, through Philip, and yes, through Peter, and of course, yes, through Paul. So, we're looking at this, and we are coming to the conclusion, um, and this is my conclusion, that Luke has provided a narrative of affirmation in which the mission is more important than any one individual. He's asking us to look at those involved in the church, our fellow brothers and sisters, and to look to see what we have in common. Yes, we know there are differences. How do we keep the big beasts together? How do we handle a church with diversity? And he's saying, put on rose-tinted spectacles and look at the church and see that God is working in similar ways through each part of the church and through the different leaders, the different sections of the church, and this is the way to look at the church and to be able to praise God. Although we know that there are Judases and Ananiases, we can still be positive in the church. So, he has provided a narrative, I would say, of affirmation. And, uh, you know, uh, F.C. Bauer, he looked at this and he says, ah, this is just propaganda. We know that the church was completely split. And I say, no. Why should I take that cynical posture? I am going to adopt Luke's view of the church and to look at what is in common rather than simply looking at the uh, odd occasion where they might have had um, uh, a falling out. Uh, So, let us… 
move on because um, maybe I've just, uh, I hope, just given you a way of looking at the church. Uh, look at the Peters and look at the Pauls at the diversity and affirm what is in common and thank God that he is working. So where do we get our excitement then? Here I would suggest is where the excitement lies when we're reading uh, Acts. It's not so much when we compare Peter's and Paul's. This isn't where the excitement in the story is. The excitement in Acts is rather when we focus on the main character, and the main character in Acts is Jesus working through his Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that is working. And let me share with you three stories about the Holy Spirit. See, here is where you get your excitement, uh, not from looking at what Peter and Paul may be thinking about each other. They are part of the same mission, and they are working for the same Lord. Rather, let's look at what the Holy Spirit is doing, and let me just take you through three stories which give you an intimation of how we should read Acts with our ears open to what the Holy Spirit may be doing. Uh, I've just given three stories here, and I'm, I'm going to talk my way through them and simply show you how there is variety. I have emphasized uh, the similarities. We've been doing mostly comparisons this afternoon, but we can look at stories and ask, how does God work in these stories? And we can see that He doesn't work in the same way in each situation. What is exciting about the church is not what this person is doing compared with that person, but rather it is what God is doing in the church. That's where the excitement lies. That's where our focus should lie. So let me share with you three stories, and you will see how this works. Uh, we turn to the story of Pentecost, and I'm simply taking you through the order of three actions. We have three stories, and we have uh, preaching, baptism, and the reception of the Holy Spirit. And as we go through, we will see that the order varies in each story. If we look at Acts 2, we start off with the Holy Spirit. In verses 1 to 4, the Holy Spirit comes like a violent wind upon the believers there in Jerusalem. And then verse 14, Peter stands up with the eleven, he raises his voice and he starts his sermon. He preaches. So the Holy Spirit is given, and then Peter preaches, and then we come at the end of his sermon. We have a summary of what the response is. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And then he exhorts them, and then verse 41, so those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. So the order at Pentecost is that the Holy Spirit comes first, Peter preaches, and there is a baptism. That's the order of events. When we come to the story we've already briefly looked at in Acts 8, where Philip is in Samaria, uh, we find 
a different order. We find in verse 5 that Philip starts with preaching. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds with one accord listened eagerly to what was said by Philip, hearing and seeing the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying with loud shrieks came out of many who were possessed, and many others were paralyzed or lame. Uh, the lame were cured. So there was great joy in the city. And then we drop down a couple of verses to verse 12, and we move on to their response. We've just seen how positive it was, but we get this response. Verse 12, but when they heard Philip, there was uh, proclaiming the good news. He's preaching about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were what? Baptized, both men and women. So the baptism follows the sermon. And then later, we have Peter and uh, John, they come, and from verse 14 on to 25, we have the story of how they bestow the Holy Spirit upon those who had been baptized. So the order is different from what we have at Pentecost. There it was Holy Spirit, preaching, baptism. Now we have preaching, baptism, and Holy Spirit. And one final example, we go to chapter 10, the story of Cornelius the centurion who uh, Peter went to, and there we find the order is a third order, yet different from the two stories we've just looked at. We go to verse 34. Peter is with Cornelius and his family uh, and his household. Verse 34, Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And then he carries on through his sermon. We will look at some of the sermons for the next two days. That's our agenda. What was the theology of their preaching? And he's going through his sermon, and as he's preaching, we, we uh, I mean, this is, I don't know what to, how to respond to this as someone who preaches myself. Verse 44, we read that while Peter was still speaking, what happens? If you've got your Bibles, have a look. While Peter was still speaking, it's okay to interrupt the preacher sometimes, as long as you're the Holy Spirit. Uh, we find there that the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. So we have sermon interrupted by the Holy Spirit, and then we find that they were baptized so, verse 48, he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited him to stay for several days. So the order we get when we read uh, these stories, I would suggest, is actually different from stories to story. So if you want to find out where the excitement is in Acts, it's actually this dynamic Holy Spirit who one day he's working this way, the next day he's working this way, the next day he's working this way. That's where the excitement is. Keep your eyes focused on the Lord and how he works in the church, and that's where the excitement is that's going on in our church today. This is Paul's, uh, Luke's narrative as to how to look at God's movement. Finally, I have one final comparison. Here we've been looking at the acts of the Holy Spirit. This is how we are being invited to look at God's movement. One final compare and contrast. 
When I read this story, I have seen the comparison of Peter and Paul with Jesus and the similarities. I see that the movement that Jesus started His mission carries on in the church. I've seen how it works with those who are diverse. They're still being guided by the same Holy Spirit. And I'm overawed by this narrative. And then I come to the end, and I start to reflect. Ah, so what? What about my life? What about my church? And I start to look at my life, and I start to say, Lord, if your ministry carried on through Philip and through Stephen and through Peter and through Paul and the apostles and all those unnamed believers in Acts, if that dynamic Holy Spirit was working through them and it's you who gives us the interest, you are the main character, Lord, I can't demand it. I can only ask it. I can only request that in your mercy, you will send your Holy Spirit into my life, into my church, and that you will invigorate me, Lord. Because as I read this, I look at my life and I say, Lord, I shouldn't be looking at the differences between Peter's and Paul's. I should be looking at the differences between Peter and Paul and myself, and I am humbled, and I realize that I need to grow, Lord. And so it is, Lord, I pray that you would forgive me for where I have maybe erred and uh, lived not according to this pattern that I have seen, where I have followed other templates uh, within our ministries and within our churches. And may you, we can't demand it, the Holy Spirit is a free agent. We simply invite the Holy Spirit to come into our church and to lead wherever not where we want, but where He wants. And this is where we submit ourselves to the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit. This is the type of church I want to be part of, a church that is hungry to be a continuation of the mission of Jesus and the mission of Peter and Paul. May we regard his work through the lenses of Luke, and may we keep our eyes focused on the Lord. This is my prayer. Maybe we can just bow our heads as we pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you who love the world and want to fill it with your presence will send your Holy Spirit upon us, Lord. Forgive us where we have erred, where we have fallen out, where we have focused on those things which have maybe been a distraction, and may we focus on those things that we have in common with our brothers and sisters as participants in one united mission. May it be your Holy Spirit that drives us forward. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.